G'day, it's Phil Edwards, Vision CEO here, with a quick invitation to become part of this amazing beacon of hope called Vision. Together we can put our love into action to help people of all kinds build or rebuild their lives on the truth of God. Please consider the part you can play during our upcoming Visionathon appeal, remembering that it's your support that makes Vision possible, including this podcast. Audio on demand from Vision Christian Media. The whole point of this parable, these parables together, is to convince you of how desperate God is to constantly search for you. There's nothing more valuable to God than you. Hello and welcome to Today with Jeff Vines. Today, Pastor Jeff asks, what's the most important thing you've ever lost? And how long would you try to find it again? In his message, Holding, he'll remind us we are the most important things to God to find and keep. He is going to uncover every rock. He is going to look everywhere. He's going to do whatever he has to do in your life to find you. This is Today with Jeff Vines. Good morning, everybody. All right, here we go. Luke chapter 15, Luke 15, verse 11. And uh, while you're turning, two questions for you, okay? First question is this. Uh, what's the most important thing you've ever lost? Okay, other than your mind. <laughs> what, what is the most important thing you've ever lost? Think about it just for a moment. Just take some time. What is it? Uh, there's an article on the internet, which you know is always true. Uh, the top 10 things that people fear losing the most. Number one, your life. Now that makes sense, doesn't it? If you lost your life, of course, if you did, how would you know? Number two, your mind. And I think of the poster written by the young mother, I lost my mind, I'm pretty sure the kids took it, yeah. Or the person who said, out of all the things that I've lost, I miss my mind the most. And right now I have a lot of friends that seem like they've lost their mind. I can tell by their political comments, but that's another story. Uh, a child, number three, a child. A child. That'd be tough. I've been reading Elizabeth Smart's book uh, called My Story. If you know her story, she was abducted from her own bedroom in her own home in 2002, and then the story from there is horrific. But losing a child, I can't imagine what that would be like. I actually lost Delaney once in the grocery store, my son. And when I found him or when he found me, I can't remember who found who, but I remember the look on his face. He didn't actually say anything, but he communicated still. It was like, you must be the worst dad on the planet. <laughs> Number four, your wallet. Interesting. Your life, your mind, a child, and then your wallet's close number four. We love our money in America, don't we? Number five, your dog. Now, I don't know if you know this, but dogs do not like to be lost. They do not like to be lost. Now, I notice in here that there's no mention of cats. Because <laughs> cats are never lost. They're not, you're the one that's lost. They're never lost. And I believe in Blessed subtractions sometimes. That's another story as well. Number six, a winning lottery ticket. How bad would it be to know that you've won the lottery, you've won 20 million bucks, but you can't find the ticket, you lost it? You think there'd be a fight between the husband and wife over where the ticket and who had it last? I think so. And how, how long would you look for the ticket? You'd still be looking, wouldn't you? So your life, your mind, a child, your wallet, a dog, a winning lottery ticket. Number seven, a family member. And my response to that is it depends on which one. <laughs> Joan Rivers said, I told my mother-in-law that my house is her house, and she said, get off my property. 
Number eight, your driver's license. Uh, I remember a cartoon where a police officer was demanding a driver's license from a young teenager driver. And the teenager responded by saying, how could I give you my license? You took it from me a year ago. And so (laughs) driver's license. Number nine, a computer hard drive. I remember a cartoon in Christianity Today about 20 years ago, and it stayed in my mind. It was a pastor who was in a straitjacket, and the caption read, I deleted accidentally all my sermons. Now, that may not be funny to you, but to me, hey, that's real. I can't imagine deleting 30 years of sermons and research. And number 10, the thing they feared the most losing, your cell phone. Your cell phone. For me, that would be a major catastrophe because I have one of those CCV jackets with all my credit cards, driver's license and everything. So if I were to lose my phone, I'd lose me basically. So just for a moment, what is the most valuable thing that you've ever lost? Now here's the second question. Isn't it true that the effort that you spend looking for it is directly proportionate to the value of that which is lost? So if you lose $5, you may spend five minutes, but if you lose $500, you may spend five hours. And if you lose $5,000, you may spend five days. The value of what has been lost will determine the intensity with which you search for it. Correct? That's, that's pretty simple. Matter of fact, when we were in India, we were traveling, speaking, traveling, speaking. Then we got back to the hotel in New Delhi, ready to fly out to Los Angeles And we realized that our flight didn't leave that day, that it left 3 a.m. the next morning. So we had 24 hours. And so I thought, wow, I got 24 hours to do whatever I want. Robin, my wife, chose to go down to the markets. And I'm not talking about the shopping malls. She likes to go to the local market, man. She likes to go and haggle for things. That's just her. She grew up in Africa. That's Robin. But I got this idea. Do they play golf in India? (laughs) And I found out they do. And I had a translating friend of mine call the New Delhi Golf Club, and I went and I played with rented clubs, New Delhi Golf Club. It was the longest, tightest golf course I've ever played in my entire life. And here's what I noticed, that when you play, you have two caddies. One caddy carries your bag, and another one goes out to find a ball in case you hit it into the woods. The reason being is because in India, golf balls are so expensive. Here over at Glendora, if I lose a ball, I'll look five minutes, pull another one out of the bag and go on. But there, no, they're valuable. So you actually hire somebody to make sure you don't lose a golf ball. It's cheaper to pay him for four hours work than to lose one golf ball. If you've ever lost a credit card, a debit card, or if you've lost something as valuable as a, as a child, a relationship, the intensity with which you search is always in direct proportion to its value. Now, when you come to Luke 15. We're in the context of the prodigal son, but that's in the context of the lost coin, the lost sheep, and now the lost son. And the whole point of this parable, these parables together is to convince you of how desperate God is to constantly search for you, to find you, that there's nothing more valuable to God than you, and that he is going to uncover every rock He is going to look everywhere. He's going to do whatever he has to do in your life to find you. And so the entire thing about Christianity is that there's a relationship between you and God, that you know that he exists, that he speaks to you, that you learn to listen to his voice and it changes everything. Ravi Zacharias says it like this. He says, our destiny is in a relationship to a person, not a pilgrimage to a place. Our purpose is in communion with the living God. 
not in union with an impersonal idea or nameless higher power. Such categorization is intellectual cowardice. Access to an abstract power gives you no one to be grateful to in times of blessing and no one to question and receive comfort from in times of sorrow. I would add one line to that, no one to be accountable to when moral decisions come. I cannot believe how many times that I have studied and preached from this parable. It is probably the most common, most popular parable in the New Testament. And also one of the most popular parables outside of Christianity. The world knows the parable about the prodigal son. But there's something I've missed. And I want you to see it so badly. It's, it's life-changing. It's transformational. Okay, so first, what we do know that we've said numerous times Well, there's a father in the parable that owns the estate. He's wealthy. He has two sons, an older one and a younger one. And one day the younger one comes and asks a question. It's in Luke 15, verse 12. Father, would you give me my share of the estate? You and I look at that and we think, okay, fine. No, this is incredibly offensive in the Eastern culture. As a matter of fact, you could not say anything to your father or to the community that would be worse than this. Because in effect, what he's saying is, dad... I wished you were dead so that I could get my inheritance. I don't want to sit around and wait for you to die. I want you to die now so I can take the money and do with it whatever I want to do with it. And I don't want to live under the restrictions and the rules and the precepts of the community. I don't want the shame and the guilt associated with breaking and violating the law of the people. I want to go out, take what is rightfully mine, what belongs to me, go out, spend it the way I want to spend it, use my life the way I want to use my life without fear of guilt and shame because I violated some moral code. That's what he says. I want to live as though, dad, you were dead. And I want to live as though the family, the whole community's dead. I don't want any responsibility to them to you or anybody else. Now, what's interesting about this, this is the way we live all the time. (laughs) Dr. Dobson, James Dobson, tells a story about a little boy by the name of Frankie. And little Frankie's two years old, and he goes to the kitchen, and he grabs a chair, and he takes it into the living room and puts it between the curtain and the window and climbs up on it with his bare little legs, puts both hands on the window and just stares out. His mother sees this. His little legs protruding from underneath the curtain. She walks over and just listens to what he's doing. And she hears little Frankie saying, Frankie, you got to get out of here. (laughs) That's the manner in which we live. We got to get out of this, this bondage of moral law, of someone telling us how it is that we ought to live. Come on. That's who we are in America. Nobody's going to tell us how to live. And when they do, man, we're going to get ticked and we're going to protest and we're going to stand up and shout. Nobody tells me how to live. That's us. The problem is this, that when you throw God out, it's not only a moral boundary that you lose, you also lose origin. Where have you come from? Meaning, what is the meaning to your life and destiny? Where are you headed? But so many are willing to throw it all out just so that there will be no more moral absolutes. But the young man never stops to think about this. If my father's dead, if I want to live a life apart from the father, if there is no father, there is no life. If there is no father, there is no inheritance. There's nothing without the father. And in the parable, the father represents God and the prodigal son represents us. And our habit of constantly living in a distant land away from the Father rather than at home with the Father. 
And the reason is we want to escape his precepts, but we don't realize when we do, we lose meaning, we lose origin, we lose purpose, we lose destiny, we lose it all. And the son never stops to think that the father may give the precepts motivated out of love. How many of you would say that I was a bad father if I told my son Delaney to not do cocaine? If I said, Delaney, I know that you may be tempted. I know that there may be peer pressure, but you've got to bring those feelings under subjection to what you know to be true, that cocaine will kill you eventually. Now, would I be a bad father or a good father? It is possible to be a good father and still draw boundaries and precepts. The son never asked the question of the father. Maybe the father gives me these boundaries for my protection, not to be the big, bad cosmic boss, but because he loves me. The creator knows his universe and how it best works and how we best work within it. Let me say it again. The creator knows his universe and how it best works and how we best work within it. So the prodigal son comes to the father and he says what? I want to live as though you're not real, you don't exist, and though the community's not important. The shocker of the story as Jesus told it to the people in his day would have been the father's response. The father doesn't berate or beat or banish the son. He doesn't give him a speech on how he should respect the community and his own father. He simply goes and takes what the son would inherit and gives it to him freely and says, okay, go on your way. That would have been a shock to Jesus' audience. This is Today with Jeff Vines, and we're hearing from Pastor Jeff about holding on to and pursuing what is important, using the parable of the prodigal son as illustration. Let's continue now. Please stay with me. This is so important. So important. The reason this parable doesn't have the punch that it should have is because we're, we're coming at it from a Western mindset. The Western mind is very individualistic. The questions we ask is how is this thing or this person going to help me? That is our ultimate question. How is the church going to help me? What is God going to do for me? What are these people going to do for me? That's very Western. It's individualistic. In the East, the mind is totally different. It's how can I be used to enhance the community, the bigger picture? What is my role in the bigger scheme of things? So much so that when the son comes to the father and says, give me my inheritance, what he's basically saying is this. I don't care about the community. I only care about myself. The passion of the first century was to do whatever it would take in your community to expand your territory and land and to make sure that your name goes on generation after generation. That's why Abraham got so upset with God. God said, your descendants are going to be as numerous as the sand and the seashore and the stars in the sky. And Abraham comes back, you know, 18 years later and says, God, I still don't have a son. I can't have, I can't have hundreds of children if I don't have one. Having a child is everything. And having children is everything because the more sons and daughters you have, the more you can expand your land and your territory and your name will continue. Now, let's be honest, guys. How many of you stay awake at night wondering if your name will continue forever? I mean, how many of you are walking the halls at 3 a.m. thinking, man, I wonder if the name Vines is gonna be all over the world in three generations from now. Most of us don't think in those terms. We're just worried about making it to the end of our lives. Maybe our children, but not our grandchildren. So when the prodigal son comes to the father and says, 
dad, give me my inheritance. He's basically saying, I not only want dad to die, I want the community to die as well. I don't care about the family name. I don't care about my origin, where I'm from. I don't care about the land. I don't care about that our community will exist and exist and go on and go on. I don't care about my place in this community, my meaning or purpose in my life. I don't care about my future, the destiny. I only care about right now. And I definitely don't care about these moral precepts. I just want to go and live my life. Now, when a son did that to a community, it was called shaming the community. Shame. And it was the worst possible offense you could ever commit. And when I was speaking in India at the World Convention, I was the only speaker that used a translator. And at first I thought, why do I have to speak with a translator? No one else did. Is it my Southern accent? But Dr. Law said, no, it's not your Southern accent. It's because you're speaking the closing session. So there were people from 39 different countries represented. But he said, on the last day, I want to bring in all the villages and all the village churches. So there's going to be a lot of people there that don't speak English. So I'm going to translate for you. And I thought, what can I start? What can I talk about that would get them, that would bring them in? And I thought, wow, Mother Teresa, Calcutta, India. They would all know her. And I told the story of when Mother Teresa spoke at Harvard graduation in 1994 and chose as her topic abstinence, that sex should be reserved for marriage. Can you imagine this old white Albanian woman talking to these Harvard graduates about not having sex until they're married? And you know what they did? If you know the story, they booed her. They booed her. Now, I said that numerous times, but the translator, I could tell by the look in his eyes, he kept saying, booed? What, what's this word, booed? And I say, you know, boo, and he jumped back. And I said, no, 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 not boo, booed. You booed her. <laughs> he looked at me in shock and said, do you mean shamed her? And I said, yes. He goes, you want me to tell them that? I said, yes. Okay. And over the crowd, the thought that someone shamed Mother Teresa. Now, if you know the rest of that, shame, by the way, it just means to dishonor someone or to treat them as if they have no value. And they were shocked that anybody would treat Mother Teresa that way. But if you know the rest of the story, some of the children who had been rescued from the streets of Calcutta by Mother Teresa were now living in the Boston area and heard that Mother Teresa was coming to town. They hid behind the columns. And when the students started to boo her, they thought the speech was over. So they ran on on stage too early. And she got down on one knee and they began to hug her and love her. And the tears began to flow, at which point the Harvard graduates started to give her a standing ovation. They changed just like that. There's a great sermon there. People aren't really going to care what's in your mind until they see what's in your heart. This would have been a shock to Jesus' listeners. I I can't emphasize this enough. The son comes and basically says, I'm shaming you, Father, and the community. And when that happened, the community would have engaged in what was known in that culture as kazaza. They would have taken the son. It's not only the father. The father with the elder son and with all the people in the community would have taken him to the gate and performed this ritual called kazaza. Now, before I tell you what that is, let's talk again about what you know. The rest of the story, what happens? He goes out, he squanders the wealth, right? He ends up feeding the pigs, which is quite tough for a Jewish boy. He ends up longing for the food of the pigs, the pig pods. 
And when Jesus is telling the story, I can tell you that his audience would have been so happy. Yeah, who's disgraced now? Yeah, who's shamed now? You're in there with the pigs, boy. You're eating pig pods. I think they'd make up a little song. Eat the pig pods. Eat the pig pods. Yeah, yeah, eat the pig pods. I can see that happening. They're happy. Justice has been done. You shamed us. Now who's ashamed? But Jesus tells the story. And they don't see it coming. But verse 17, the Bible tells us that the young man somewhere along the line came to his senses and started talking to himself and said, wow, you know, uh, my father's servants have it better than I do. And then he starts to rehearse his speech in his mind. I know I'll go back and I'll say to my father, I have sinned against heaven. Notice he says heaven. I have committed a moral wrong against heaven, against, the, against all that is sacred. And I've sinned against you, dad. I know that I don't deserve, he said, to be your slave. Sorry, your son, but would you at least make me a slave? I'd be better off as a slave than I am now. So he rehearses all this. And the Bible says, he gets up and he went to his father, verse 20. But while he was on the road and still a long way off, somehow his father caught glimpse and his father runs out on the road. He throws his arms around him and kisses him. The son begins to recite the speech he'd rehearsed. Dad, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son, but, but if, you could just, if you could just make me a servant. But the father interrupts him. Look at what he says in verse 22. Quick. Bring the best robe and put it on and put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. Now, do you know why this is so eye-opening? Who's the father again? God. Who's the son? All of us at one time or another, some of us right now, Rather than living at home with the father, we choose to live in a distant land. We rebel against his moral code, not realizing that we've lost origin, we've lost meaning to our life, and we've lost destiny. <laughs> but the Bible tells us that when the son comes home, what does the father do? He runs to meet the son. Now look, uh, an Eastern nobleman would never do this. You've heard, you've heard this before. If you've been in church any length of time, when you run, you have to pull up your cloak. And... I know what this is like now because in India, they made me wear one of those when I preached. This is the short version. This is, the, this is, the, this is as far as I could go. But they made me wear it. It's like a dress. And I, now I understand why women, it's tough to wear a dress, isn't it? I mean, you've got to be aware at all times of wind, of all kinds of stuff. <laughs> and so when you wore this kind of attire and you started to run, you had to pick your dress up and you would expose your bare legs, which in the Middle East, you'd never do. But he does it. He runs to meet the sun. Aristotle, who's a Greek philosopher, said, great men never run, great men are run too. They may walk slowly and casually like, you know, like a John Wayne. But CEOs and kings and popes, you don't see people like that run. They ring a tiny little bell and people come running to them. You only run if you're a child and you're playing or you're desperate or you're needy or you're too eager or you're afraid. But in the parable of the state, please stay. The parable of the prodigal son, Jesus tells us that this is a father who would lift up his robe and expose his bare legs and run to meet the son. In fact, John Ortberg, one of my favorite writers, says this. He forgets his dignity. This is God we're talking about. He forgets his robes. He forgets everybody that's watching and he sees only the starving, aching, exhausted figure of this son that he had given up for dead. 
And only now his son is coming back home and the father takes off like Michael Jordan on a fast break. I love that. But why? What's the hurry? Why is the father running out to the son? We say, well, that, I mean, you don't have to be a theologian to know that. He missed his son. Yes, he did. But there's something else going on here. This is Today with Jeff Vines. That's all we have time for today. Next time, we'll hear the rest of this message about holding on to that which is important and valuable. And they would go out by the gate and wait for him to be coming down the road. And as soon as they saw him, and as soon as he arrived at the gate, they would smash their clay jars again and say, remember, Kazaza, you are disintegrated to us. There is no relationship between you and us. Leave this place. And he would not be welcome back. Today with Jeff Vines, just another way vision is connecting faith to your life. Thanks for taking time to listen to this audio on demand from Vision Christian Media. To find out more about us, go to vision.org.au.